Section 33, Part 4 of Chapter 8 of the Commentaries on the Laws of England, Book 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Commentaries on the Laws of England by William Blackstone. Book 1, Chapter 8, Part 4. The perpetual taxes are 1. The customs, or the duties, toll, tribute, or tariff, payable upon merchandise exported and imported. The considerations upon this revenue, or the more ancient part of it, which arose only from exports, was invested in the king, were said to be, two, one, because he gave the subject leave to depart the kingdom and to carry his goods along with them, two, because the king was bound of common right to maintain and keep up the ports and havens, and to protect the merchant from pirates. Some have imagined they are called with us customs, because they were the inheritance of the king by immemorial usage and the common law, and not granted to him by any statute. But Sir Edward Coke hath clearly shown that the king's first claim to them was by grant of Parliament, three, Edward I, though the record thereof is not now extant. And indeed this is in express words confessed by the statute 25th Edward I c. 7, wherein the king promises to take no customs from merchants, without the common assent of the realm, saving to us and our heirs the customs on wools, skins, and leather, formerly granted to us by the commonality aforesaid. These were formerly called the hereditary customs of the crown, and were due in the exportation only of the said three commodities, and of none other, which were styled the staple commodities of the kingdom, because they were obliged to be brought to those ports where the king's staple was established, in order to be there first rated, and then exported. They were denominated in the barbarous Latin of our ancient records, costume, not constitutines, which is the language of our law whenever it means merely usages. The duties on wool, sheepskins, or wool-fells, and leather, exported, were called costuma antiqua sive magna, and were payable by every merchant, as well native as stranger, with this difference, that merchant strangers paid an additional toll, vides, have as much again as was paid by natives. The costuma parva and nova were an impost of threepence in the pound, due for merchant strangers only, for all commodities as well imported as exported, which was usually called the alien's duty, and was first granted in the thirty-first Edward I. But these ancient hereditary customs, especially those on wool and wool-fells, came to be of little account when the nation became sensible of the advantages of a home manufacture, and prohibited the exportation of wool by statute 11 Edward III, c. 1. There is also another ancient hereditary duty belonging to the crown, called the presage or butlerage of wines. Presage was a right of taking two tons of wine from every ship importing into England twenty tons or more, which by Edward I was changed into a duty of two shillings for every ton imported by merchant strangers, which is called butlerage, because paid to the king's butler. Other customs payable upon imports and exports are distinguished into subsidies, tonnage, poundage, and other imposts. Subsidies are such as were imposed by Parliament upon any of the staple commodities before mentioned, over and above the Customa Antiqua and Magna. Tonnage was a duty upon all wines imported, over and above the prisage and butlerage aforesaid. Poundage was a duty imposed ad valorem at the rate of twelve pence in the pound, on all other merchandise whatsoever, and the other imports were such as were occasionally laid on by Parliament, as circumstances and times required. 
These distinctions are now in a manner forgotten, except by the officers immediately concerned in this department, their produce being in effect all blended together, under the one denomination of the customs. By these we understand, at present, a duty or subsidy paid by the merchant, at the quay, upon all imported as well as exported commodities, by authority of Parliament, unless where, for particular national reasons, certain rewards, bounties, or drawbacks are allowed for particular exports or imports. Those of tonnage and poundage, in particular, were at first granted, as the old statutes, and particularly First Elizabeth C. 19, express it, for the defence of the realm and the keeping and safeguard of the seas, and for the intercourse of merchandise safely to come into and pass out of the same. They were at first usually granted only for a stated term of years, as for two years in fifth Richard the Third, but in Henry the Fifth's time they were granted him for life by a statute in the third year of his reign, and again to Edward the Fourth for the term of his life also, since which time they were regularly granted to all his successors for life, sometimes at their first, sometimes at other subsequent parliaments, till the reign of Charles I, when, as had before happened in the reign of Henry the Eighth and other princes, they were neglected to be asked. And yet they were imprudently and unconstitutionally levied and taken without consent to Parliament, though more than one had been assembled for fifteen years together, which was one of the causes of those unhappy discontents, justifiable at first in too many instances, but which degenerated at last into causeless rebellion and murder. For, as in every other, so in this particular case, the king, previous to the commencement of hostilities, gave the nation ample satisfaction for the errors of his former conduct, by passing an act whereby he renounced all power in the crown of levying the duty of tonnage and poundage, without the express consent of Parliament, and also all power of imposition upon any merchandises whatsoever. Upon the restoration this duty was granted to King Charles the Second for life, and so it was to his two immediate successors, but now, by three successive statutes, ninth Anne C. 6, 1st George I, C. 12, and 3rd George I, C. 7, it is made perpetual and mortgaged for the debt of the public. The customs, thus imposed by Parliament, are chiefly contained in two books of rates, set forth by parliamentary authority, one signed by Sir Harbuttle Grimston, Speaker of the House of Commons in Charles II's time, and the other an additional one signed by Sir Spencer Compton, Speaker in the reign of George I, to which also subsequent additions have been made. Aliens pay a larger proportion than natural subjects, which is what is now generally understood by the alien's duty, to be exempted from which is one principal cause of the frequent applications to Parliament for acts of naturalization. These customs are, then, we see, a tax immediately paid by the merchant, though ultimately by the consumer. And yet these are the duties felt least by the people, and if prudently managed, the people hardly consider that they pay them at all. For the merchant is easy, being sensible he does not pay them for himself, and the consumer, who really pays them, confounds them with the price of the commodity, in the same manner as Tacitus observes, that the Emperor Nero gained the reputation of abolishing the tax on the sale of slaves, though he only transferred it from the buyer to the seller, so that it was, as he expresses it, remissum magis specie, quam vi, quia cum venditor prendere juberitur, in partem preti, emptoribus accresibat. But this inconvenience attends it on the other hand, that these imposts, if too heavy, are a check and cramp upon trade, 
and especially when the value of the commodity bears little or no proportion to the quantity of the duty imposed. This inconsequence gives rise also to smuggling, which then becomes a very lucrative employment, and its natural and most reasonable punishment, viz. confiscation of the commodity, is in such cases quite ineffectual, the intrinsic value of the goods, which is all that the smuggler has paid, and therefore all that he can lose, being very inconsiderable when compared with his prospect of advantage in evading the duty. Recourse must therefore be had to extraordinary punishments to prevent it, perhaps even to capital ones, which destroys all proportion of punishment, and puts murderers upon an equal footing with such as are really guilty of no natural, but merely a positive offence. There is also another ill consequence attending high imports on merchandise, not frequently considered, but indisputably certain, that the earlier any tax is laid on a commodity, the heavier it falls upon the consumer in the end. For every trader, through whose hands it passes, must have a profit, not only upon the raw material and his own labour and time in preparing it, but also upon the very tax itself, which he advances to the government, otherwise he loses the use and interest of the money which he so advances. To instance in the article of foreign paper, the merchant pays a duty upon importation, which he does not receive again till he sells the commodity, perhaps at the end of three months. He is therefore equally entitled to a profit upon that duty which he pays at the custom-house, as to a profit upon the original price which he pays to the manufacturer abroad, and considers it accordingly in the price he demands of the stationer. When the stationer sells it again, he requires a profit of the printer or bookseller upon the whole sum advanced by him to the merchant, and the bookseller does not forget to charge the full proportion to the student, or ultimate consumer, who therefore does not only pay the original duty, but the profits of these three intermediate traders, who have successively advanced it for him. This might be carried much farther in any mechanical or more complicated branch of trade. 2. Directly opposite in its nature to this is the excise duty, which is an inland imposition, paid sometimes upon the consumption of the commodity, or frequently upon the retail sale, which is the last stage before the consumption. This is doubtless, impartially speaking, the most economical way of taxing the subject, the charges of levying, collecting, and managing the excise duties being considerably less in proportion than in any other branch of the revenue. It also renders the commodity cheaper to the consumer than charging it with customs to the same amount would do, for the reason just now given, that because generally paid in a much later stage of it. But, at the same time, the rigor and arbitrary proceedings of excise laws seem hardly compatible with the temper of a free nation. For the frauds that might be committed in this branch of the revenue, unless a strict watch is kept, make it necessary, whenever it is established, to give the officers a power of entering and searching the houses of such as deal in excisable commodities, at any hour of the day, and, in many cases, of the night likewise. And the proceedings, in case of transgressions, are so summary and sudden, that a man may be convicted in two days' time, in the penalty of many thousand pounds by two commissioners or justices of the peace, to the total exclusion of the trial by jury, and disregard of the common law. For which reason, though Lord Clarendon tells us, that to his knowledge the Earl of Bedford, who was made Lord Treasurer by King Charles I, to oblige his Parliament, intended to have set up the excise in England, yet it never made a part of that unfortunate prince's revenue, being first introduced, on the model of the Dutch prototype, by the Parliament, itself, after its rupture with the Crown. Yet such was the opinion of its general unpopularity, 
that when, in 1642, aspersions were cast by malignant persons upon the House of Commons, that they intended to introduce excises, the House, for its vindication therein, did declare that these rumours were false and scandalous, and that their authors should be apprehended and brought to punishment. Its original establishment was in 1643, and its progress was gradual, being at first laid upon those persons and commodities where it was supposed the hardships would be the least perceivable, viz., the makers and vendors of beer, ale, cider, and perry, and the royalists at Oxford soon followed the example of their brethren at Westminster by imposing a similar duty, both sides protesting that it should be continued no longer than to the end of the war, and then be utterly abolished. But the Parliament at Westminster soon after imposed it on flesh, wine, tobacco, sugar, and such a multitude of other commodities, that it might fairly be denominated general, in pursuance of the plan laid down by Mr. Pym, who seems to have been the father of the excise, in his letter to Sir John Hotham, signifying that they had proceeded in the excise to many particulars, and intended to go farther, but that it would be necessary to use the people to it by little and little and afterwards, when the people had been accustomed to it for a series of years, the succeeding champions of liberty boldly and openly declared the impost of excise to be the most easy and indifferent levy that could be laid upon the people, and accordingly continued it during the whole usurpation. Upon King Charles's return, it having then been long established and its produce well known, some part of it was given to the crown, in the twelfth Charles the Second, by way of purchase, as was before observed, for the feudal tenures and other oppressive parts of the hereditary revenue. But from its first original to the present time, its very name has been odious to the people of England. It has nevertheless been imposed on abundance of other commodities in the reigns of King William the Third, and every succeeding prince, to support the enormous expenses occasioned by our wars on the continent. Thus brandies and other spirits are now excised at the distillery, printed silks and linens at the printers, starch and hair-powder at the makers, gold and silver wire at the wire-drawers, all plate whatsoever, first in the hands of the vendor, who pays yearly for a license to sell it, and afterwards in the hands of the occupier, who also pays an annual duty for having it in his custody, and coaches and other wheel-carriages, for which the occupier is excised though not with the same circumstances of arbitrary strictness with regard to plate and coaches, as in the other instances. To these we may add coffee and tea, chocolate and cocoa-paste, for which the duty is paid by the retailer, all artificial wines, commonly called sweets, paper and pasteboard, first when made, and again if stained or printed, malt as before mentioned, vinegars and the manufacture of glass, for all of which the duty is paid by the manufacturer, hops, for which the person that gathers them is answerable, candles and soap, which are paid for at the makers, malt liquors brewed for sale, which are excised at the brewery, cider and perry at the mill, and leather and skins at the tanners. A list which no friend to his country would wish to see farther increased. 3. I proceed, therefore, to a third duty, namely that upon salt, which is another distinct branch of His Majesty's extraordinary revenue, and consists in an excise of three shillings fourpence per bushel imposed upon all salt, by several statutes of King William and other subsequent reigns. This is not generally called an excise, because under the management of different commissioners, but the commissioners of the salt duties have, by statute, first and C-21, the same powers, and must observe the same regulations as those of other excises. 
This tax had been usually only temporary, but by statute 26th George II, c. 3, was made perpetual. 4. Another very considerable branch of the revenue is levied with greater cheerfulness, as instead of being a burden, it is a manifest advantage to the public. I mean the post-office, or duty for the carriage of letters. As we have traced the original of the excise to the Parliament of 1643, so it is but justice to observe that this useful invention owes its birth to the same assembly. It is true there existed postmasters in much earlier times, but I apprehend their business was confined to the furnishing of post-horses to persons who were desirous to travel expeditiously, and to the dispatching extraordinary packets upon special occasions. The outline of the present plan seems to have been originally conceived by Mr. Edmund Prideaux, who was appointed Attorney-General to the Commonwealth after the murder of King Charles. He was a chairman of a committee in 1642 for considering what rate should be set upon inland letters, and afterwards appointed postmaster by an ordinance of both the houses, in the execution of which office he first established a weekly conveyance of letters into all parts of the nation, thereby saving to the public the charge of maintaining postmasters, to the amount of seven thousand pounds per annum. And his own emoluments being probably considerable, the Common Council of London endeavoured to erect another post-office in opposition to his, till checked by a resolution of the Commons, declaring that the office of postmaster is, and ought to be, in the sole power and disposal of the Parliament. This office was afterwards farmed by one Manley in 1654. But in 1657 a regular post-office was erected by the authority of the Protector and his Parliament, upon nearly the same model as has been ever since adopted, with the same rates of postage as were continued till the reign of Queen Anne. After the Restoration, a similar office, with some improvements, was established by statute 12 Charles II, c. 35, but the rates of letters were altered, and some farther regulations added, by these statutes 9 Anne, c. 10, 6 George I, c. 21, 26 George II, c. 12, and 5th George III, c. 25 and penalties were enacted, in order to confine the carriage of letters to the public office only, except in some few cases, a provision which is absolutely necessary, for nothing but an exclusive right can support an office of this sort. Many rival independent offices would only serve to ruin one another. The privilege of letters coming free of postage, to and from members of Parliament, was claimed by the House of Commons in 1660, when the first legal settlement of the present post-office was made, but afterwards dropped upon a private assurance from the Crown that this privilege should be allowed the members, and accordingly a warrant was constantly issued to the postmaster-general, directing the allowance thereof, to the extent of two ounces in weight, till at length it was expressly confirmed by statute 4th George Third, c. 24, which adds many new regulations, rendered necessary by the great abuses crept into the practice of franking, whereby the annual amount of franked letters had gradually increased, from twenty-three thousand six hundred pounds in the year seventeen fifteen to one hundred and seventy thousand seven hundred pounds in the year sixteen sixty three there cannot be devised a more eligible method than this of raising money upon the subject for therein both the government and the people find a mutual benefit the government acquires a large revenue and the people do their business with greater ease expedition and cheapness than they would be able to do if no such tax and of course no such office existed Five. A fifth branch of the perpetual revenue consists in the stamp duties, 
which are a tax imposed upon all the parchment and paper whereon any legal proceedings, or private instruments of almost any nature whatsoever, are written, and also upon licenses for retailing wines, of all denominations, upon almanacs, newspapers, advertisements, cards, dice, and pamphlets containing less than six sheets of paper. These imposts are all various, according to the nature of the things stamped, rising gradually from a penny to ten pounds. This is also a tax, which, though in some instances it may be heavily felt, by greatly increasing the expense of all mercantile as well as legal proceedings, yet, if moderately imposed, is of service to the public in general, by authenticating instruments, and rendering it much more difficult than formerly to forge deeds of any standing, since, as the officers of this branch of the revenue vary their stamps frequently, by marks perceptible to none but themselves, a man that would forge a deed of King William's time must know and be able to counterfeit the stamp of that date also. In France and some other countries the duty is laid on the contract itself, not on the instrument in which it is contained, but this draws the subject into a thousand nice disquisitions and disputes concerning the nature of his contract, and whether taxable or not, in which the farmers of the revenue are sure to have the advantage. Our method answers the purpose of the state as well, and consults the ease of the subject much better. The first institutions of the stamp duties was by statute 5 and 6, William and Mary, C. 21, and they have since in many instances been increased to five times their original amount. 6. A sixth branch is the duty upon houses and windows. As early as the conquest, mention is made in Doomsday Book of fumage or fuage, vulgarly called smoke-farthings, which were paid by custom to the king for every chimney in the house. And we read that Edward the Black Prince, soon after his successes in France, in imitation of the English custom, imposed a tax of a florin upon every hearth in his French dominions. But the first parliamentary establishment of it in England was by statute 13 and 14th Charles II, C. 10, whereby an hereditary revenue of two shillings for every hearth, in all houses paying to church and poor, was granted to the king for ever. And, by subsequent statutes, for the more regular assessment of this tax, the constable and two other substantial inhabitants of the parish, to be appointed yearly, were, once in every year, empowered to view the inside of every house in the parish. By statute 1 William and Mary, statute 1 C. 10, hearth money was declared to be not only a great oppression to the poorer sort, but a badge of slavery upon the whole people, exposing every man's house to be entered into, and searched at pleasure, by persons unknown to him, and therefore to erect a lasting monument of their majesty's goodness in every house in the kingdom, the duty of hearth-money was taken away and abolished. This monument of goodness remains among us to this day, but the prospect of it was somewhat darkened when, in six years afterwards, by statute 7, William Third, C. 18, a tax was laid upon all houses, except cottages, of two shillings, now advanced to three shillings per house, and a tax also upon all windows, if they exceed nine, in such house. Which rates have been from time to time varied, particularly by statutes 20 George the Second C. 3, and 31 George the Second C. 22, and power was given to surveyors, appointed by the crown, to inspect the outside of houses, and also to pass through any house two days in the year, into any court or yard to inspect the windows there. 7. The seventh branch of the extraordinary perpetual revenue is the duty arising from licenses to hackney coaches and chairs in London, and the parts adjacent. In 1654 two hundred hackney coaches were allowed within London, Westminster, and six miles round, 
under the direction of the court of aldermen. By statute 13 and 14 Charles II c. 2, 400 were licensed, and the money arising thereby was applied to repairing the streets. This number was increased to 700 by statute 5 William and Mary c. 22, and the duties vested in the crown, and by the statute 9 Anne c. 23, and other subsequent statutes, there are now 800 licensed coaches and 400 chairs. This revenue is governed by commissioners of its own, and is in truth a benefit to the subject, as the expense of it is felt by no individual, and its necessary regulations have established a competent jurisdiction, whereby a very refractory race of men may be kept in some tolerable order. End of section 33